Yeah, you still have a minute. You know, would you like to go back out? <laughs> okay, this is Amichai. Oh, Amichai, here. Uh, Jeff sent you this, which is a key. To the city. You can now... Whenever you need a shul, you could come here. The parasha is Bahar B'chukotai. We're gonna we're gonna learn uh, together the beginning of Bechukotai. Now everybody knows that the parsha Bechukotai is the parsha that contains the Brit, the covenant between Hakadosh Baruch Hu and Bnei Yisrael as they are about to enter the land. Now this plan uh, didn't work out because in the in the book of Bamidbar. Bamidbar Noso Bahaloscha Shlach Shlach. The fourth parish in the book of Bamidbar, the Jews admitted that they didn't want to go. That they didn't want to go to Eretz Israel. Now it's not perfectly clear why they didn't want to go and what was so good about being in the desert. I mean it's hard to understand that exactly, but they didn't want to go. And so they sent the Muraglim, they sent these spies, and the spies came back and told the Jewish people what they thought. They, the spies, thought that they wanted to hear. And I guess the spies themselves also wanted to hear it. I mean, they thought that was the right thing to say. And what they said was, you're not going to make it. You're not going to do it. It's, uh, it's like a, a, a tremendous enemy territory. So that was the end of the story. That was the end of the story. So the parasha b'chukotai, the parasha b'chukotai is precedes the Jewish people going into Eretz Yisrael. Now they didn't go into Eretz Yisrael. They decided to reject that option. And therefore, in fact, we know that this covenant was sort of cancelled. The way we know that it was cancelled was that it was repeated 38 years later when the Jewish people were about to enter Eretz Yisrael once again in the parashah of Kitavo. Of Kitavo, there are certain differences between the agreement in uh, Bechukotai and the agreement in Kitavo. The second agreement is longer, has more uh, horrible uh, uh, punishments that B'nai Yisrael would be liable to. But that's kind of the structure of, of what happens. So you know that the book of Dvarim is basically the last days of the life of Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? The book of Dvarim. Moshe Rabbeinu makes speeches and talks to B'nai Yisrael and tells them things that they have to know and all of that is the end of the life of Moshe Rabbeinu. The whole book of Dvarim. The whole big fat book of Dvarim. The book of Bamidbar, starting from the parashah of Shlach, which is the parashah of the Miraglim, covers the 38 years in the desert. It's sort of like the half of the book of Bamidbar is about the 38 years of the desert. The 38 years of the desert. The whole book of Dvarim is only about the last few days of the life of Moshe Rabbeinu. After they got to Arvot Moab, they got to this place which was like kind of the jumping off point to go into Eretz Yisrael. Then, um, then there was another covenant that was written or agreed upon between Bnei Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch. Now these covenants, 
the two covenants, the one in the one in Bechukotai, and the word word Kitabo, are sort of the same basic structure. And that structure is, if you do the right thing, you keep the mitzvot, and you keep the Torah, then you'll get the following benefits. And there's kind of a short list of benefits that you get, but it sounds pretty good. But if you don't, if you don't, then, it, then the covenant says you don't keep the Torah and the mitzvot, then you're going to get the following punishments. And the punishments are enumerated. Those are enumerated and very oppressive. Now what I'd like to look at today is the first part of the covenant in the parasha of Bechukotai. Right? Covenant is Brit. The word in Hebrew that, uh, that is used, Brit, is usually translated to English as a covenant. I don't know what a covenant is, but I guess it's a Brit. But, uh, this whole idea of making a deal with God is a little hard to understand. That's not the way we usually think about it. But that seems to be the way it's presented in this covenant. Now what I want to do is look at the first part of the covenant together with you. This is, uh, there are about ten psukim. We'll look at these psukim and we'll see what it's, what it's about. That's how the covenant begins. You know, in, in the Hebrew of the, of the Torah, you can start something with im. In fact, a lot of if, the word if, like uh, if such and such happens, then you do such and such. It's a, it's a kind of a legal way of formulating things. It doesn't just say, do this or do that. But the Torah often says, when this happens, then do that. So, if you follow the laws, chok is a law, and here the Mephoshim make a lot to do of the verb right, that you go in the way of the law. So you have, you know, for those of you who are interested in the details, you have to understand that there's a parallel between the verb teilechu, lalechet, to go, to walk, and the other verb tishmeru. So this is kind of an opening for parashanut. In what way is watching or keeping the same as going or walking, right? It's an interesting an interesting question, and Parashanim deal with that, but we're not gonna, we're not interested in that right now. I mean, we are interested in it, but we're not going to do that right now. Pasuk Dalit says, "Venatati gishmechem beitam, venatnacha aretz yivula, veeitz asadei item piriyos." So this really sounds good. Gishmechem beitam, the rains will come when they're supposed to come. Everybody knows. Everybody who lives in Eretz Yisrael knows that rain is an issue, right? It rains in the winter, it doesn't rain in the summer, and sometimes it doesn't rain so much in the winter. So you have a problem. So that the promise of rain, also rain, as I've mentioned in the past, rain is the example, is, is the, the factor in the world that makes prayer necessary. No, it's because uh, it's clear that we have no control over the rain, and I think that that's almost 100% true today, even though if you have a plain and a lot of dry ice, you could try 
seeding clouds with dry ice and maybe it'll rain a little bit but it's not going to be the solution to the problem of what we're going to drink tomorrow morning so that rain rain is out of our control the water is out of our control and the Torah differentiates Eretz Yisrael and Mitzrayim right so don't go back to Mitzrayim the Torah said because Mitzrayim is a godless place now how do you become a godless place well since Mitzrayim lived on the Nile the, the river Nile and the river Nile just overflowed it was all there you know the water was there you had to just make sure that the Nile overflowed and the Nile was happy to do that so you didn't have to daven you didn't have to daven but in Eretz Yisrael because there's always this doubt about how things will be you have to daven you have to, you have to beseech God to give us rain and this is reflected in the davening that we do you know that in the winter we're concerned about Tala we're, we're concerned about Matar we're concerned about Geshem and we mention these things all the time when we, when we daven so v'natati gishmechem be'itam Eight means at the right time. is a It's a serious promise. Uh, it's a it's a serious promise. And then pasukei v'sig lechem daish et batzir. Daish is is like threshing, threshing the wheat. And batzir is uh, is the wine. It's getting the grapes together to vintage. And batzir yasig et zera. And zera is uh, you know things that grow out of the ground. In other words, the promise is that nature will work. And it'll be easy. Because if it rains when it's supposed to rain, then, you know, when you plant things, it'll grow what they're supposed to grow. It'll grow it in a way that you'll be able to take advantage of it. And you won't have to worry all the time about what you're going to eat. Because you see that, that that's being taken, that that is being taken care of. Pasuk Vav, Vratati Shalom Ba'aretz. How's that? That's a nice thing. Right? Even though, I mean, it's a thing that people today, like we know, we all say that, but none of us actually believe it. I wouldn't say none of us. Most of us don't really believe that that's an option. And therefore, people prefer to do other things. But here, the Torah says, Shalom Now, that is a political statement. It means that the nations of the world continue to exist, but they'll appreciate us. They'll say, Oh, you know, they're the Jews, they're in, they're in Eretz Israel, they're doing great things, they grow. They take big tomatoes and grow little ones, and they take little green tomatoes and grow big tomatoes, and that's really, really the greatest, you know. And everybody will say, all the people all over the world will say, spunky little country, that is, you know, or something, you know. That's when Atati Shalom Ba'aret. So, I mean, today, today we could appreciate, we could appreciate that, you know, to imagine that the people in the world would want to live with us in peace that seems you know like uh, like messianic and, you know a lot of people I mean it is messianic 
but not in the Torah. In the Torah it's not messianic, the Torah is just the result of keeping the Torah and doing the mitzvahs. That you won't be afraid of lying down, like, like relaxing your guard. Not only political, political uh, uh, peace, but even nature will be at peace with, uh, like, you know, the prophet Yishayahu says, he's describing the future, that the sheep and the wolves will lie together, right? You know, I don't know too much about sheep and wolves being together or not being together, but I guess that if Yishayahu said it, it was like a remarkable thing to describe. Right, you know, like the guys have It doesn't happen that you know that regularly. That's why. That's why he said it. a cloak is the Rambam, the Ramban, about what that means. If you don't know that, you should know it. So, in any event, the hair of lo tavor or there will be no sword in your lap. I mean, this is really something. Or edafdem adoyvechem l'naflulif nechem lecharet. Radfulichem, and and you will chase after your enemies, whoever's left. I mean, after all this bucolic state that you're in, you know, everybody's happy with everybody else and everybody everybody says cool, you know, like everything's cool. So that's what that's that's the world that is being described. But this is not the world of the Mashiach. This is our world, the world of people who keep the Torah and do the mitzvahs. That's how that's how it is. And then a small group of uh, Jewish soldiers will run after uh, large groups of foreign soldiers. They exist. Uh, and you will be able to, you'll be victorious in the battle, like the, the sword will be your sword. And then here the Brit that is referred to, like in other words, God says, I will look upon you and you will multiply. It will be many, many more. I mean, it'll be a sign of good health. You know, everybody's healthy, everybody's happy, everybody has a lot of children. And, uh, and, and then the covenant will be established again. In other words, further established. The further established. And more good things are going to happen. See, this is like a difficult pasuk. So before, let's just look at the Rashi. You see the Rashi in pasuk Yud, you'll eat old, 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 very old. That's what the pasuk says. Rashi says, and you're going to have all this stuff. You're going to grow much more than you need. And you're going to start stockpiling it. But it's not like you're going to, you know, you know those refrigerated vegetables? They don't taste so good. You know, they taste like they're refrigerated. But not this. You're going to have last year's vegetables this year. They're going to taste better than they did last year. That's, uh, and, 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 uh, he sounds like sounds pretty good. You know, it sound, doesn't say anything about credit cards or country clubs or things. But up to there, it all uh, is is remarkable. Vitalachti bitochechem, vitalachti bitochechem. I Hakadosh Baruch Hu will go in your midst. Vayiti lachem leilokim vatemti yuli laam. 
uh, Rashi says, look at Rashi, Pasuk Yudbet at the bottom, like we're all, we're all in Gan Eden. So what is Gan Eden? Gan Eden is where your needs are supplied for no effort. But you don't do anything. It's just all there on the trees. You know, like, like you know, the Chazal say that the Eitz Adad, one of their many interpretations, what the fruit was that Adam Chava ate, or one of the fruit was... That they, one, of the, one of the answers to that question is that there were chalas on the tree. You know, I don't know if they were Burman chalas or angel chalas, but there were chalas. But chalas on Jesus, you just walked by, you know, you had to, you had to eat Shab- for Shabbos, so you took two chalas and, uh, and you were on your way. So everything is supplied. That's the idea of God Eden. So according to Rashi, according to Rashi, the promise of the covenant is that the Olam Hazer will turn into a God Eden. And this is an important thing for us to remember based on what we are about to, we're about to learn. Because that's what God Eden is. God Eden is not a place where people are, are not people. or that. God Eden is a place where the supply side of things is extremely convenient. And that tremendous convenience enables you to spend most of your time learning Torah and doing mitzvot. I mean, that's the idea. That's the idea. In other words... There's a certain deficiency that we have. We, man slash woman, but I mean man is a category. We have a deficiency, and that deficiency is we have to be serviced. Right? We have to eat a little, we have to sleep a little, we have to like uh, enjoy something a little. Right? We have all the, like, we, we have to be serviced. So the, minimum, the Torah is saying, according to Rashi, that the promise is you will almost be in Gan Eden. Ganeden, you don't do anything. Okay, you still have to do something. You have to plant things and you have to harvest them. But not much. I mean, you don't do much. Everything works. Everything works. Uh, uh, everything works very well. There are no disasters. The rain comes when it's supposed to come. There are no terrible things happening. There are no wars. There are no... Uh, I mean, nothing unsettling, particularly. And therefore, you walk with God in God Aden. That's what, that's what uh, uh, Rashi says. Okay, that's what Rashi says. And that's what, that's what the Psukim say. Now you know that there's a, the Rambam. The Rambam talks about Schar. The Rambam. I'm mean, talking about the Rambam in the, in the, in the Yara Chazakah. In Sefer Hamadah, the Rambam, talks about Schar Va'onesh. And the Rambam is very clear. Maybe it's, you know, it, he differentiates himself from Rashi on this point. The Ram is very clear that there is no schar, Baha'i Alma. There's no reward that we received in this world. That all the reward, all the reward, reward that we receive is reward in Olam Haba. Reward in Olam Haba. Now rewarded, that means because the only thing that's true in the Rambam mystic way of thinking about things, true means nothing changes. It's, it's like God. It's the world of God. In the world of God, nothing changes because God preceded creation. Therefore, in the world of us, where things change all the time, you can never get reward because nothing you get is true. Because if you got something good this year, but next year you didn't sort of act properly, you didn't act up to that level, then you wouldn't get the same reward any, anymore. 
And anything that changes or is changeable is not true. It's not emet. And the reward that the Torah is talking about is emet. So the Rambam says that even though the Torah mentions the fact that you're going to get rain and you're going to get harvest, and, 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 and he says the Torah doesn't mean that that's the reward. It's a deal. That's the covenant. The covenant's a deal. And so God says, if you, if you B'nai Yisrael, are willing to do the mitzvot to keep the Torah, so Hakadosh Baruch Hu in heavens will make it easier for us to keep the Torah and do the mitzvot. So it'll rain at the proper time, and the, 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 the stuff will grow more easily, and, and life will be uh, more pleasant. Right? All of that is all of that is olam hazeh, which is not true. Right? It's not the truth of things. It's only the olam hazeh of things. So whether Rashi and the Rambam think differently about this, since Rashi mentioned Gan Eden, and Gan Eden is a kind of an in-between stage between olam hazeh and olam haba. Olam haba is the truth that the Rambam is talking about. Gan Eden is extreme goodness of olam hazeh. I mean, it's hard for me to, to explain it any better than that. In other words, in Gan Eden, people eat. And they have to get food. They have to get the food, but it's, it's there. But you don't have to do anything to get it. It's always there, but you still have to have it. If you don't have food, if you don't have food, then, uh, then you'll die in Gan Eden as well, apparently. I mean, no one ever died in Gan Eden, so I, I don't know exactly. But, but in any event... That's the beginning. So we so we learn these we learn these psukim. What I'd like to do is learn a little bit of a Torah of Rav Nachman of Bratzel. I mean, I haven't got. I would like to like talk about Rav Nachman of Bratzel a little bit, but I haven't got really haven't got the time for that. So you should know that it's interesting to know that Rav Nachman of Bratzel, who died at the age of either thirty-seven or thirty-eight which is an age that I hardly remember. And I can't even imagine. I mean, there were a lot of people who died young. But when Rav Nachman of Braslav died, he basically had no chassidim. I mean, he had like a, what they call it, in Europe, they would call it a klois. You know, klois meant uh, big ideas, but a small crowd. <laughs> yeah, that, was a, that was a klois. So Rav Nachman had big ideas, but it was a small crowd. I mean, uh, you know, how many people came to Rav Nachman in Umar? So Rav Nachman, who had nothing to lose, when he was on his deathbed, he said, in one way or the other, he said, look, I'm the Rebbe. You can't have another Rebbe. He did not say what other people have said since then. But he said, I'm the Rebbe, to his five guys. And he says, I don't want anybody out. I don't want no other Rebbe. You guys, it's me. If you, don't, if you don't take me, you don't have anybody. There's no one who can replace you. That was like an idea. What an interesting idea. So he, he couldn't be... So, and then he said, and if you come on Rosh Hashanah, if you come on Rosh Hashanah, then whatever you want, I'll take you. I'll be... Uh, I'll broker it in heaven. I mean, these are two things that he, that he said. Now, for 200 years, the result of this was that there were basically no Braslav Hasidim. And then since the communists came, you know, everybody was afraid to go to uh, Uman. Who's going to go to Uman and say, you're davening? I mean, this was not... Uh, the, after all, this uh, Uman was in Ukraine. In the Ukraine, the Ukraine 
Russia, the country called Russia, the country called Ukraine, they were pretty like communist oriented. So they weren't into this business of going, uh, going to Uman. So here have 200 years where, where the Rebbe, by, by the Rav Nachman, by, by his own uh, enterprise, sort of like disappeared from the map. Now, it's hard to imagine why this happened, but there's been certainly a rejuvenation with, you know, all kinds of Rav Nachman, Bratzlav, or Hasidim, you know, they're the kinds who are more intellectual, and the kinds who dance and sing in Kikar Tzion, and they even have teams, there are so many of them, that this team doesn't like that team, and the other team, they're like, it's like a real, it's a regular Jewish enterprise. Now there's still no Rebbe, there's still no Rebbe, but now you can go to Uman. Now you can go to Uman, and the Ukrainians, like the post-communist uh, uh, Russia, is that if you can make money on it, it's okay for them to be religious, which is like the difference. Before Glasnost, they said, even if you can make money, you can't be religious. But now they said, it's okay, if you can make money, you can be religious, and they love it. They all, they bring the people into Uman, and you know, Uman is becoming, they, they add days. They add holy days in the year. First it was just Rosh Hashanah. But now there are other days where there are large collections of people come to Uman. And there are days for women. And there are days for men. I don't know what else there is. What other group they get. But they, but they do it. And they all go and they, they, they fly in and they run around and they fly out. It's amazing. It's amazing. I was in Uman several times. Not on Rosh Hashanah. I don't like crowds, but I was there, I was there several times, and it's really set up, like I went on a tour, I went on a tour from the yeshiva once, and we came to Uman with some Russian guy, and he knocked on the door of a house right next to the grave of Rabbi Nachman, he says, look, I have ten people here, you have to sleep something, someplace tonight, so the family who lived in the apartment, and they were, they were used to this, the family who lived in the apartment in about 15 minutes packed themselves up and left. And we rented the apartment. I mean, we, like, you know, that was how you did it. That's how you rented. It wasn't like the apartment stood empty waiting for uh, uh, the people lived in it. But in 15 minutes, it was clear. clear. Everything was gone. The bedding was gone. The dishes were gone. Everything was gone. We got a perfectly clean apartment. We don't know where they went. But we know that we paid for it. For we were there a couple of nights. So, they, so they, they're all they're all into it. Like the Jewish people have a very positive name in Uman. Right? You know, they will vote for us. They will vote for us. So Rav Nachman became a big hit, and his primary work, which is called Likutei Maharan, no, it's called Likutei Maharan, uh, became has become very popular. And there are two reasons why it's very popular. One reason is that it's, I think, very, very uh, creative, very, uh, very intellectually compelling. And the second reason is that most people don't understand what it's saying, which is often a compelling thing, right? You know, like everybody, people think that if you re if you learn something and you understand it, it's probably not worth that much. But if you don't understand it, that's really, you know, that's the highest of the highs, they used to say. You know, like, understanding is a deficiency. But uh, and not being a Brasilah Chassid, I started learning Rav Nachman by, with somebody who knew what it meant. And I've been hooked on that 
ever since. So what I want to do is tell you something Rabbi Nachman said. Now on the second side of this page, there's a very long Torah, which is only a small part of a very long Torah, of a much longer Torah, that Rav Nachman asks, Rav Nachman says. And basically, basically the question that Rav Nachman asks is this. After all, we have a preconception, I mean, he doesn't ask it in the Torah, that's why I have to ask it. You know, this question is hovering behind what Rav Nachman actually says, but he doesn't say it. So I'm going to say it. And then we'll see how Rav Nachman answers the question. The question that he asks is, and it's not his question, it's a well-known, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, different Hasidic texts ask the question. And the question is, that how is it that the reward that is offered the Jewish people in the parish of Bechukotai is entirely uh, uh, about tangible, viscerous things. Things you can feel. Things you can touch. They all, it's all about the fact that we are, in the language of the medieval philosophers, Gashmi. That we are, uh, we, have, we have limits. We have to eat. We have to sleep. We have to warm ourselves in the winter. We have to, uh, we have to clean ourselves in the summer. We have these <coughs> limits which have nothing to do with the idea of Torah and mitzvot. Nothing to do with it. I mean, okay, we do the Torah, do the mitzvot. Shouldn't it be also true that there is some spiritual reward? I mean, it, that's the way we think about it. In, fact, in other words, it's, it's regressive. Learning the Torah is regressive. Because when I think of what we're doing, keeping learning the Torah and doing the mitzvahs, I think of it in a kind of an exalted sense, or at least people attempting to reach to some exalted level. That's what, that's what we're doing. And when I read the Chumash, it sounds more like it's, it's a deal. Like if you keep the Torah and do the mitzvahs, so it'll rain. You'll have a good harvest. You'll have a lot of money. You'll live a good life. I mean, that's what it is. But where is the, where is the spiritual gain? How is it possible that the Torah doesn't mention it at all? Right? Now, this is a question which, not, which I have not asked alone, but is asked again and again by different rebels. Now, the Nachman's terrors to this question is a little bit complicated, and also a little bit difficult to understand, but we're going to try to get the gist of it with your permission. I like to, even if we, I, I like to give you the text. I mean, the text, you know, if somebody has the wherewithal, you could try to learn it. It really starts from the third line. In other words, the first two lines, Klaali Yut Ben Talmud, is a continuation of what he said before and doesn't really interest us. But the third line, Hu yachol lekabel be'et ha'alicha, achila, slicha, hey arat ha'ratzom. Now, hey, the word hey arat, alef resh, is the word or. Or is a word that means understanding. And ratzon, ratzon is will. 
Heirat HaRatzon means to understand what God wants. That's Heirat HaRatzon. When do you get Heirat HaRatzon according to Rabbi Nachman? He says, when you eat. Now, what does that mean? And we've got to explain this a little bit. He says, Hainu, that is to say, that, that he gets this understanding of things while he eats. I, I, I want you to I want you know, you know that uh, Yerushalayim is full of Hasidish Yerubayim. Most of them are not found in this neighborhood. But Yerushalayim nevertheless is full of Hasidish Yerubayim. Hasidish Yerubayim do something either Friday night or Shabbos afternoon called the Tish. You know what a tish is? A tish is a table. You know what? How, you know how they what a tish is called in Hebrew? How they say tish? What they say shulchan tahor. They say shulchan tahor. Tahor means right the pure table. In other words, in other words, they're not just getting together. Now you can think that you know the tish is like. Uh, the guys getting together and like talking about how it's been and what's going to be. And then, no, no. The Tish is a place, as I'm not signing on to a particular Tish of a particular Rebbe, but I'm just saying that somehow they talk about it as though a Tish was a place where eating was something different. Like, just like I can imagine that eating eating a salami sandwich at home is not quite the same thing as eating the korban that I brought or part of the korban that I brought the Beit HaMikdash right even though it's hard for me to to describe it it's hard for me to clarify but I, I can't imagine that eating at home eating the salami sandwich at home you know watching television watching the basketball game eating popcorn and a salami sandwich is quite the same as with the Kohanim and the Levium singing and you have something to eat from the Kohanim. I mean, it's got to be different. Even though if you look at it as like how many calories were consumed at that particular, you could make a comparison between these two kinds of eating. I don't know if you get popcorn in the Beit HaMikdash, but it's, it's got to be a little bit different. It's got to be something different. So that little bit of difference indicates something about eating. Now, that's what the Rebbe is trying to say. The Rebbe is coming to say, trying to say, look, come and eat with me. It's different. It's not like eating at home. I mean, you could eat at home. That's also a good thing to do. But when you eat with the Rebbe, it's not like eating at home. It's not like eating at home. It's something pure. It's something finer. Along comes Rabbi Nachman Abrazzo. Rabbi Nachman, he argues. He makes a, he makes a, a proposition. So he starts with what he says. You know, eating is something special. The way I understand this is that every deficiency that we were created with, for example, hunger, that's a deficiency. Because when we get hungry, we have to eat. And we have to eat. We usually do things that are not connected to the Torah and the mitzvot. Right? We have to get a piece of bread. That's not a mitzvah. We have to smear mustard on it. That's not a mitzvah. We have to get that little plastic thing with sliced meat in it. That's also not a mitzvah. And then you eat it. I mean, you're like just doing non-mitzvahs all the time because, I mean, it's true that we say brachas, but that's a different matter. 
That's not midaraisa. The Torah didn't oblige us to say brachas as we make the piece of bread, but but and then and then put on the salami and the mustard. However, Rav Nachman would say it cannot be that the Kaddish Baruch Hu created man such that he would have defects, that there would be something wrong with him. But if you look carefully, if you look carefully at the created man, you should be able to discover that everything that seems to be a weakness and or a deficiency is actually, is actually an opening to some great opportunity. That's what Rav Nachman says. It's like they say, you know, people ask the question, how could bad come out of good? You know, how could God create bad people? Right, so what, so there's a question there, that if goodness is creating, so it's got to be good. So there are many answers to that question, but Rav Nachman says, he's talking about eating. Eating is a defect. It takes me away from my primary purpose. It takes me away from learning Torah. It takes me away from doing mitzvahs. I mean, I get hungry, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't, I can't stand it. I can't, I, I feel that, that I'm going to expire. I mean, people don't eat for a day. People don't eat on Yom Kippur. You know, they all come to complain that they're about to, they're about to die. I mean, I'm, as a rabbi, the, the shilas that I used to get on, on Yom Kippur were always about, I can't, everybody can fast for a day. As long as you don't get sunstroke. I mean, unless you're suffering some major illness. But all of a sudden, all these healthy young people, they, they had trouble... What am I going to do, Rabbi? I'm going to fast. So he says, this fact that we are uh, vulnerable, that we are vulnerable, is a problem in the grander scheme of things. How did God create us with this vulnerability? Along comes Rabbi Nachman, and he says, he says, what's wrong? It's not, it's not a vulnerability. It's quite the contrary. The food enables us to see. What do we see? We see what God really meant. The Hainu, I'm in line four. You think that, the, that, that this is what they call this kind of sentence where the end of the sentence has nothing to do with the beginning of the sentence? He says, when you eat food, he says, what's supposed to happen when you eat food is you can have this tremendous desire to be with God and to understand what God wants, In other words, you don't really know at the beginning, you don't really know what God wants of you, why God created you this way, what you're supposed to do. And then he goes into a very interesting analysis. This is Rav Nachman. I mean, he knew everything by heart and he put it together in a very interesting way. Now listen to what he says. Zebechinat atanotein lahem et ochlam bi'ito. Right? The posse can tell him. You know that posse. You give them, you, HaKadosh Baruch give them ochlam bi'ito. What does bi'ito mean? Well, whatever it means, you could turn over the page, back to the posse, and look at posse Dalit. Pasuk Dalit says, "Venatati kishmechem beitam." Right? Venatati kishmechem beitam. And now Rashi, Rashi has really an interesting comment. Rashi says, "Beitam." 
בשעה שאין דרך בני אדם לצאת. כגון בלילי שבתות ובלילי ימים טובים. Even the rain that falls during the winter will fall at the optimal time. And what's the optimal time? In the evening, on Shabbat and Yom Tov, because on the evening, Shabbat and Yom Tov, everybody's home eating. So it doesn't bother you that it's raining. But when you get up in the morning, have to go to shul, it's not going to rain. That's Be'ito. Be'ito doesn't mean in its time, but it means in its best time. The best time for the rain is at night, on Shabbos Eyyotim. And that's what it's going to rain. That's what Rashi says. Alok has Rav Nachman, who knew the Rashi, of course, and he says, Rav Nachman says, he's a positive to Hillel. Atano tein lahem et ochlam be'ito. So what does that mean according to Rashi? When do you get food? You'll get it in a way that will be least, least disruptive to what you really want to do in life. That's called be'ito. It doesn't mean it'll rain in the winter and it won't rain in the summer or that you'll get food when you need it. It means that whatever you get from HaKadosh Baruch Hu will be done with the minimal disturbance of your daily schedule. Right? That's be'ito. So he says, Be'ito, Zebechinat Hayarot Haratzon Hanal. So if that happens, so you see immediately something about God. In other words, it's not just a reward, it's not that you're getting rain, but the way you get the rain is an incentive to study the Torah and do the mitzvahs. And so you understand more clearly, even though you've been do- keeping the Torah and doing the mitzvahs, but it's not quite the same as if HaKadosh Baruch would come down personally and say to you, hey, good job, keep learning Torah and doing the mitzvahs. That would really be tremendous. So that the reward of rain brings you a little closer to that. In other words, it's sometimes, you know, sometimes you know something that you know already, like you knew it, and now you know it better. Like you knew that this is what God wants. But now you see that this is what God wants. Right? There's such a thing, people, you know, happens to people in life. Like you know that God wants you to, to do mitzvahs, and then you come to the conclusion, yeah, that God really wants me to do the mitzvahs. Right? That, this is a, a stage in human development which is it's perfectly, uh, perfectly reasonable. So you go from a state of not knowing exactly to greater knowing. I know that the Torah says I should keep the, keep the Torah. But now I know that I see God in action in the world, validating my understanding of things. He says, Bechinat, uh, and this is similar to a posuk in Bolok. Ka'et ye'amer li'akov Yisrael ma'pa'alkev. Now the Kabbalists made a big deal out of this pasuk. Let's see what it means. Ka'et. Ka'et means, what is Ka'et? Ka'et means, again, this recognition that God is with you, right? That there's some, some superior knowledge. Something got clarified to me. You know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, like it comes all the time. I remember, I think I mentioned once when I was a, a Smicha student, so I would uh, come home and tell my mother that she was doing something wrong. And then two weeks later, I'd learned a little more, and I realized that 
it was okay. You know, so that's called, that's called, you know something, you can know it better, right? It's not everything you think you know that you actually know. So here, here there's always this idea that in life, you can know the things in the Torah even better. You understand them better. So here you have this passage, Ka'et. Ka'et, there's a, there's a timeliness to things. Yehomer Yaakov Yisrael. I don't want to, Yaakov Yisrael, every time the two names are mentioned, that's always a, a problem that the Mephoshim have. But he says, Yomar Yaakov Yisrael. Now listen to this. Ma Pa'al Kel. That's what the passage says. That's what Bilam said. Ma, what does that mean? What does it mean? Listen again. Now, Ka'et, it was now. Now. That's now. Now in the desert, your Bilam is like ranting and raving. And he's talking about the, the, the greatness of Am Yisrael. So he says, Ka'et, now, now, now. Yehameh, the Yaakov, the Yisrael. Now they will. Yehameh is passive. It will be. They will. They will realize, right? Or it will be realized by them. What will be realized by them? Ma, pa'al, kel. What does that mean? What God did? What, 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 is, what is he talking about? What are they going to realize? Ma, pa'al, kel. Okay, I'm not. This is not a question. Because if you could answer this question, I would have to sit there and listen to you continue. I have to understand. In the language of the Kabbalists, in the language of Kabbalists, ma, the word ma, represents the, a name of Hashem. And it's one of the ways, what they did was, you know, they took Yudkei Vavkei, the letters Yudkei Vavkei, and they added them together in different ways. And they came to the conclusion that Ma, Ma, which, which is 45, is actually one of the names of God. Now, in the way of thinking about things, you know, you could, you could uh, my awareness of God, my awareness of God is uh, of different levels. For example, when the Jews were in Mitzrayim, and Moshe Rabbeinu said frogs. And then there were like a lot of frogs, right? Somebody sent me a video. One of these Pesach videos. And it was good there, like a lot of frogs. I, mean, I don't know how they did that. I guess computer frogs. I guess there were like billions of them all over the place. So a lot of frogs. So what do you know? What, what conclusion do you come to? What conclusion could you come to? You go to that. God's in charge of frogs. Right? That's a conclusion. Or God uses the weapon of frogs to help out his people. Frogs. Right? You understand? Or you might come to the conclusion that God has dominion in the world. Now that's a harder one. I mean, just because you control the frogs, who says you control the world? Like the Egyptians, they didn't think that. The Egyptians, what did they think? You know, let's just get rid of the frogs. You know, uh, you know uh, they didn't think about God. They didn't think about the idea of God. 
They only thought about the fact that there was somebody, someplace in the world, that controlled the frogs. Like there was a frog master. If you just get rid of the frogs, then your problems are solved. So B'nai Yisrael, when they saw the frogs, what did they think? I don't know. I don't know. But when they crossed, when they crossed the Yamsuf, right, what did B'nai Yisrael say? Zeh, Keli, Vadveil. Zeh, what does Zeh mean? Zeh is a preposition, preposition of pointing. Zeh, a dectic pronoun. That's what they call it. Why it's called, I don't know what it is. That's what it's called. You know, it's always good to use confusing language. Zeh. So, when the people crossed Yamsuf, said they were on a different level of understanding than the Jews of Mitzrayim. It was a lot of frogs. And they said, okay, this is great. The frogs bother the Egyptians and they don't bother us. That's great. But is it like No. It's not the same. So the people who could say were more serious religious personalities than the people who, who saw the frogs, even though they're the same people, right? There's no difference between them. I mean, they're the same people, actually, actually the same people. So, ma pa'alkeh, according to Nachman, probably means he doesn't explain it because he thinks it's so simple that everybody understands it. That ma, the higher level of appreciation of God. Pa'al, Kale, makes the lower level of divinity, which is Kale, not Yud Kei Vav but is Aleph Lamed, makes it work. In other words, when we are in the world, we can think about God as being strong, as being dominant, as being, uh, as controlling the rain and the seasons and the heat and the cold. Or we can think about God as being special, esoteric, Sanctity, right? You can think about that, but that has nothing to do with all that other stuff. So you say, when, when Bilam is talking about the Jewish people, he's saying, now the Jewish people will understand Ma Pa'al that beyond God's activity in the world, like God making this happen, God making that happen, there's also God. Right? And God is not about doing things. God is a notion that we have to learn to appreciate. And so Bilam was complimenting Bay Yisrael on this, on this point. And he quotes a Yushalmi. And the Yushalmi says, Here's what it says in the Yushalmi. That the mechitza, that the separation we assume that, we understand the philosophers also said that anything that is not God is separate from God. Even, even created man or woman, right? We're not God. We were created by God, but we're different. We're different by God in, in, in every possible way. So there's a mechitza. There's a mechitza. A mechitza is a separation which cannot be overcome, really. So the Yerushalmi says, the Yerushalmi says that uh, 
ברתידם צדיקים שיהיו מחיצתם לפני ממלאכי השרת. We usually think of מלאכי השרת being very close to God, the angels are very close because they do God's bidding. The will of the angel and the will of God are the same. Whatever God wants to happen will happen through the angels. To say that the tzadikim, the mechitzah of the tzadikim, is closer to God than the angels are, that means that the tzadikim have the ability to convert themselves into that being that is so closely uh, tied to God's will that it can't do anything else. And since the angels have no other will, so it's not that interesting, but man had to conquer his tendency to be that way. So he says, Yerushalmi, it's very remarkable that you can get this knowledge. And where do you get this knowledge from? Where do you get this knowledge? And then he talks a little about uh, Mickey Finn. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go to line 15. Vaz ya sagatam betchinat ma pa'alkeh. In other words, in life, in real life. And the Rambam agreed with this, and all of the great Jewish philosophers agreed with this. A person can work on his appreciation of God. And not simply see God as, or not see God simply as the agent that makes things happen in Allah Hazrat. It's not that we have to sit around all the time and ask for brachot and cry over sickness and disease because that's pshita God is in charge and whatever happens God is in charge but what we are supposed to be doing according to the Rambam and according to Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, is gaining access to closeness to being closer to being more profoundly interested in and that's called that's called Yeyamer Liakov Yisrael Ma Pa'alkev that is a higher level than just sitting around and saying oh there was a miracle we won the war oh there was a miracle somebody was sick got well not that not that but oh there is a God there is a God and that God has these qualities is able to bring me into another another level of existence. And one way to access that is to ask yourself, this is what Rav Nachman is trying to trying to prove, is to ask yourself why we're created the way we're created. Why are we created with this need to eat? I mean, wouldn't it be good if we were created? We never had to eat. And we could even be even polar bears. That would be good. Like, they, they could spend not a long time not eating. Right? I mean, they... They go into hibernation fat, and they come out slim. It's like a, it's like a diet that always works. Uh, uh, so we could be like that. I mean, we eat like twice a year. But it's just like this dependency that we have. So Nachman says that if you look at, if you look really carefully at Ma'pa al whatever happens in the world, there's something behind it which is more meaningful than it seems to be at the outset. And so the Hasidic Shirebeim, you know, 
some of them more and some of them less. Like, I mean, Chabad, they don't do this. But other Hasiduyot, they come and they say, let's eat with the Rebbe. Well, why are they eating with the Rebbe? I mean, not eating because they think the food is so good or because their wives at home can't cook. That's certainly not the case. The reason that they're eating with the Rebbe is because they have this idea that's inherited. Maybe they don't think about it so much, but they have this inherited idea which is that eating can be significant. And so what Chazal say, Chazal say, you shouldn't eat in the shuk. You know, it's a Gemara. What do you mean in the shuk? I, mean, I don't know, you know, like, some, everybody has a mother who tells them things like that. The mothers know about these things in some way. Well, why shouldn't you eat the shuk? You know, like, the shuk is like, you, it means you're working. You're, you're eating on the run. Like, you know, you're on the way to court to litigate a big deal. So, so in one hand you have a briefcase, in the other hand you have your salami sandwich. And, you know, you're eating as you're moving along. What's wrong with that? I mean, what's the exact problem about eating bashuk? So the answer is that a person who eats bashuk can never make eating an exalted affair. Never make eating an exalted affair. So you have Friday night, Friday night at Shabbos, or Shabbos lunch, and we all try. Right? We try to make eating exalted. How do we do that? Well, we eat foods that we don't usually f- eat uh, we have conversation we don't usually have, but but, but uh, uh, it's a night of tal- like Talmud Torah is often part of the meal that we eat on Shabbos. I'm not sure that the Talmud Torah should necessarily be relegated only to the children who bring home those sheets that tell them what they learned that week. I mean that's okay, that's very nice, and, and it's good to do it, and you know the little kids are all very clever and uh, but I, I think that that it's important to to be involved in the Torah I think it's important for the older people around the table to be involved to be involved it could mean gee I, I didn't understand this I didn't understand that or maybe I have something to say about this or something to say about that that's called that's called being involved instead of like canned Torah right you, you say have a sheet yeah, canned Torah is also good but it has to lead to something so that the nature, the nature of the time that you spend eating on Shabbos is different, at least the way we've kind of worked it out, it's different than it is during the week. Because if you look carefully at Zmirot, you know a lot of people like to, see, to sing Zmirot, which of course is a, uh, is a terrible idea. Because I remember... I remember Shmuel Salvechik once told me that uh, he, he was uh, the Rav's younger brother was a chemist. And he taught chemistry in uh, YU and I was, uh, one year I was his student. And he, you know, he had Parkinson's but that didn't stop him from mixing test tubes of volatile material with each other. So, so as he was shaking his hand, you know, he had these lecture rooms that had a a table in the front where you could do an experiment. So he's like shaking away. We're all moving back, further back, and back. And he would say, don't worry, boys. I've done this many times, you know, and then, you know, he would call it up. But he was a very, a very nice man, so he... Uh, yeah. What? It's Who? It's 
So he said he was he was he was in Yerushalayim and he went to talk to his uncle, who was the Briskerov, as you know, the Briskerov in Yerushalayim, was this Shmuel Salavechik's uncle. So he went to his uncle. So he invited him, uh, you know, invited him for Shabbos. So they said Friday night. They ate, they talked, it was very nice, he says. Then after, after they finished eating, the briskerov took out a sitter and he started reading the Zemiris. So Shmuel said to him, he said, look, you don't want to sing Zemiris, don't sing Zemiris. But what are you, why are you reading them? Why are you reading the Zemiris? So the briskerov said, if it's in the sitter hagro, you know the gro." The Vilna Gaon, if, if the words are in that Siddur, I'm going to read those words. Now you know that the words of the Zmiros are words of Torah. They're all about halacha, and they're about ideas that have to do with, with Shabbos. And when you sing them, um, even though singing is very nice, I mean, you know, it's not that, but, but when you sing them, you may have noticed now and then, that even if the words are really good, they tend to get lost in the music. Or they tend to get lost in the, in the joy of the music. You know, people are happy to sing the music. So, okay, nothing wrong with that. But nothing wrong with the words either, I'll tell you. And the, those me wrote were not written for the word, for the music. They were written for the words written for the words, and therefore it would not be such a bad idea if you sang Zemiros, but you made a minhag, that you take one paragraph in a Zemira every Shabbos, and see what it means. Sometimes the reference is to Allah, and sometimes the reference is, is to an idea. Right? And so all the halachot and all the ideas have to do with Shabbos, and that's what makes the Shabbos meal special. What Rav Nachman says is, Rav Nachman says is that the limit, this idea that we are, that we are created in the way that God wants us to be created, that includes what seems to us to be a weakness, a fault. If you read the Rabbam Hilchus Deus, the Rabbam says, look, you have a body, we each have bodies, and those bodies are annoyances. Because, you know, if we had a situation where the body was always healthy, and you were always fit, and you didn't have to sleep too much, so then you'd be able to do what you really want to do, right? What you really want to do. But uh, since we have a body, Rahman al-Islam, so the Rambam says, so try to treat your body well. You know, eat good food, to follow certain kinds of healthy rules, Take care of yourself. But this is not a, a spiritual achievement. This is in preparation for a spiritual achievement. Whereas Rav Nachman of Ratzel said, if you look carefully at the reality that we live in, we might find secrets that relate to the way God wants us to be. And in eating, that's the mapa al If you think about it, you think about that, that eating is about overcoming. It's about being able to do with the body that is not as good as you could imagine it to be. It's a challenge, right? The way we are, the physical reality, is not just a challenge, big adol, like a person might want to do, a big avera. 
But it's a challenge on the simple day-to-day level to do, to do well, to, uh, to, to have certain kinds of achievement, to be able to take yourself seriously. I mean, I sound like one of those guys in a magazine in the barbershop. But, but, but that's, what Rav, that's what Rav Nachman said. Rav Nachman said, if you look carefully, you see more. Right, that was a, a famous, a famous uh, uh, Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman says, you know, if you squint, you know, you know what squinting is? Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the guys in this big glasses say you shouldn't do that. Sure. Why does he squint like this? So you see, why do you squint? Why do people squint? Because they see better, right? Because, you know, it's blurry, and they squint, and they see better. So that's what Rav Nachman says. Rav Nachman says, you have to squint at reality. He says, what you see, that's what you see, but you should not be uh, fooled into thinking that what you see is all there is. And you have to look hard, you have to squint. That's what Rav Nachman of Ratzav said. So, he goes back to the parasha, and the parasha said, if you keep the Torah, you do the mitzvahs, you get good stuff. What is, the, what is, the, what is, the, what is it that you're really going to get? You're going to get understanding, closeness, clarity, because you're going to have time to think about why the world is as it is, and why HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us what HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, promises to give us. Have a good Shabbos.